Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to Have We Got uh, Planning News For You. Apologies for the for my horse voice. I can't think what uh, is the reason for that. Um, welcome to our YouTube viewers. Please don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And please, of course, consider making a charity donation in place of the registration fee. We support, amongst other charities, the NHS Charities Together um, and Shelter. But if you'd rather donate to a charity of your choice, that would be equally great. We're thrilled um, to welcome um, this evening to join us, um, Clive Betts, MP, M- MP for um, Sheffield South East and chair of the CLG Select Committee, which, of course, have recently published a report into the Planning for the Future white paper proposals. Um, Chris is going to be leading the interview with Clive in the second half of the show. Um, Clive, perhaps you could tell us um, where, you're, where you're calling us from today and uh, what, if anything, you're drinking. Um, from my home uh, in Sheffield. Unfortunately, I was tipped off about your question about drinking uh, <laughs> in advance. Uh, make sure I want to get a very refreshing glass of orange juice. Very, very sensible. Well, thanks very much indeed again, Clive, for joining us. As I say to all of our guests, um, if there's anything that you'd uh, like to comment on our first half of the show, please feel free to chip in, but no obligation at all. And we're looking forward to hearing uh, Chris's discussion with you uh, in the second half of the show. Um, now it's time to introduce the panel. And uh, Mary... In a different location to usual today. I'm, I, I thought I'd sit in front of a different picture, but I'm still in the in the woods in Wandsworth, as it <laughs> were. Uh, and um, uh, good evening and uh, welcome um, to the show, Clive. Lovely to have you on. Uh, what an exciting 24 hours it's been. I'm surprised, not surprised, none of us have got much of a voice. Uh, all that screaming and shouting. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I'm here. Mary Cook, Town Legal. Thanks, Mary. Paul. Cheers. Rehydrating. <laughs> <laughs> What earth is that in your backdrop? What do you mean, what earth is that? that that's the coat of arms of Sheffield. Sheffield. Ah, of course. Well, there we are. I didn't see the coat of arms. I just saw the two. two, two and, uh, uh, I'm drinking for a, for a mug which you can't see. Um, <laughs> which, uh, I'll, anyway, it says Yorkshire born and bred, but obviously I can't work out the tech. And I've got uh, something from Huddersfield here, which you also can't see, uh, which will be absolutely delighted. Um, and despite the fact I've got the Yorkshire coat of arms behind me, I'm still in Lancashire. Sorry about that. Fell out. <laughs> uh, Sasha, how are you? And where on earth are you? <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in my ancestral home. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm in the, the delights of the Crew Hall Hotel after a great recommendation from Paul. But I'm obviously, <laughs> I'm very, very happy, Bunny. Yesterday I had 55 Scots all telling me they hoped England got absolutely stuffed. And my two caddies turned up in Denmark shirts to enjoy the day with me. So that made it even more sweet. So, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to today's show. Fantastic, Sash. Chris, have you been up to anything interesting the last 12, 12 or so hours? 24 no, hours? 
To be honest, Charlie, not much on. Struggling for ideas for the weekend as well. I, you know, it's been quite a boring week, to be honest. Um, <laughs> oh, no, it hasn't, has it? It's been <laughs> the greatest week in football ever for, for 55 years. And, uh, well, what an amazing, amazing match. It was just fantastic. Anybody got their nerves shredded? <laughs> I have. I just need to say a special thanks to... Ronald McDonald, the headmaster of my son's school. You know why, uh, Robert. And thank you very much uh, for your kindness there. And um, I am drinking sleepless. Just <laughs> <laughs> call him Ronald McDonald then. Yeah. <laughs> Robert. Robert. That'll <laughs> stick. Great to see you, Chris. Charlie Banner here from Keating Chambers. Uh, I'm, I'm calling from Chambers and I'm drinking full fat Coca-Cola uh, today to see me through. <laughs> now, um, we're stuck onto the serious stuff and uh, we're going to start with round two of the McGaw um, litigation, um, the, the appeal from the decision, Paul, that you covered um, a few months ago. Yeah, if, if you recall, Charlie, that uh, I was given this particular uh, seminal case in English history, English legal history, at the moment that we were interviewing Lord Carnworth, the former most senior planning judge in the whole uh, of the country. Um, I remember I still, it well. I, I still have my uh, Italian hats that uh, I wore at the time. And yes, this is round two of it. This is the Court of Appeal decision, a judgment of Sir Timothy Lloyd, and it decided... Uh, so. So Timothy Lloyd gave the lead judgment. Uh, Lord Justice Lewison uh, tucked in at the end, as did Lady Justice Aspelon. Uh, but Lord, Lord Justice Lewison said government needs to sort out and amend the GDPO. But this dealt with a really important and, and interesting case where, I don't know if, Rob, you've got the uh, the cross-section uh, for those who can remember. Yes, mm. that is Mr McGill, McGill's garden in Swansea. You can see that uh, his back garden slopes up. And on the right-hand side, he wants to build a garden house. Uh, on the extreme right-hand side, you can see a wall next to his next-door neighbour and a, an area of land which is higher than his land. And the case, case determined whether or not uh, uh, his honour Jarman, at the first instance, had been right to say that when you look at what's meant by adjacent land uh, for the GDPO Class E rights to build a garden house, you look at the land which is exclusively in the curtilage or you look at the land which is, quote, immediately adjacent. Uh, and funnily enough, uh, 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 his Honour Justice Jarman said, you look at the land which is immediately adjacent. And uh, the Court of Appeal said, absolutely, you look at the land which is immediately adjacent. Um, that, that followed on, which is probably the only case, the only point really to take, a, take away from this, which is that there's an endorsement of, a, of an earlier case uh, called English Plays, uh, which is paragraph 15 of the judgment. Uh, and it has the most brilliantly... Um, uh, uh, incisive but offensive uh, comment to, to both counsel in that particular case uh, about the uh, the language that should be used in GDPO, which the court said you have to take sensible and common sense approaches. And it said um, uh, GDPO is not is framed for administrative purposes rather than uh, uh, conveyancing purposes. This hasn't prevented counsel on either side from spinning elaborate arguments worthy of a more complicated subject matter, matter and drawn from provisions other than the GDPO. Whilst I greatly admire and acknowledge the thoroughness of council's endeavours, I do not find in the end that I get any guidance at all from those illustrative arguments. Uh, it seems to me you need to use the ordinary, ordinary language of the GDPO. So that's a good day, happily not for me or anybody else on the show. So that's McGraw part two. I'm looking forward to the Supreme Court. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's my mouthful. 
<laughs> Surely they'll grant permission just so that you can cover it one more time. I do it pro bono. <laughs> <laughs> Mary, you're going to tell us about a High Court decision. I am. I'm going to whisk you away to the glorious city of Plymouth, packed with its rich mm. history and scenic seascape. And in particular, I'm going to take you to the industrial seafront down there at Catdown Road. And my case this week is a decision of the Honourable Mrs Justice Thornton. This was a claim, uh, which a challenge to the grant of a permission for a change of use and listen to this carefully because it's quite unusual, comprising a residential use with permitted ancillary private helicopter use to a commercial heliport at a place called Victoria uh, Road, uh, uh, sorry, Victoria House in Catdown Road. And importantly, um, for the factual uh, purposes of, of, of this case, a lawful development certificate had established that there was no restriction on the ancillary helicopter use. Just clock that point because it, it becomes quite important. And the, the applicants also made the point that they had, uh, um, in theory, they had a 28-day use for commercial purposes. Now, Rob, I think we have a picture here just to um, bring the case to life a little bit. There you go. So you can see in glorious uh, Technicolor green, um, a white house, that's Victoria House, and you can see an, an adjacent, quite prominent building. And this is surrounded by industrial land. And, and note in particular uh, the storage, liquid storage um, containers uh, to the north and west, as it were, of the building in, in question. So the application um, envisaged that a new commercial heliport uh, would be located. Um, and there would be three or four commercial heliport landings a week. And there was something called a deconfliction agreement that had been signed with the Harbour Commissioners, which was submitted as part of the application, which set out all the stringent checks and regulations applicable to various um, helicopter flights, which in this particular area was in a, something called a congested area. That's a technical expression uh, it, it, which is relevant to flights. Anyway, so aptly, this was a cornerstone barrister's affair with my former pupil, Wayne Beglin, acting successfully for Plymouth City Council. Um, I say aptly because I did lots of work for Plymouth City Council when I was at Cornerstone. Mm. And the claimants in this case were the adjoining neighbours uh, of uh, the industrial land, which was a Comar site. Uh, that's a a site subject to the control of major accident hazard regulations. And they received and stored on site highly flammable liquids in those containers that we just saw. And they were very concerned about the increased risk to their coma sites posed by the development and the risk of helicopter collisions. The HSE had been consulted and they had advised uh, or rather, they had not advised against the development. The applicant uh, claimed that there were that they ran several grounds. Um, the first ground was an allegation that the council had failed to have regard to the increased risk to the coma sites, uh, and this actually failed on the facts. And it's interesting in that the applicant had provided a report citing that there was a risk of an accident of one in one billion. And that had been accurately reported in the written case officer's report. But in the oral presentation, the officer had used the words one in nine billion. 
and the there was criticism of the oral debate. And the judge had in front of her the officer's report. She had um, extracts from the planning application document, and she also had a detailed uh, transcript of the events at the planning committee. And she found that it was um, not right, as a matter of fact, that the officer's report had failed to, to consider the increased risk as a material planning consideration. And she described the criticism of the officer's oral mistake as a hypercritical analysis. And we've seen that expression used before, haven't we? When um, parties pick up on mistakes that are made in the oral debates, which of course is much easier to do these days when there are video conference committees. The second uh, uh, ground of the claim was uh, related to the fallback position. And the allegation was that the fallback had been skewed and the judge um, rejected that point, but in so doing, um, also commented on what was described as a new curtilage point that was introduced in the oral hearing. So it wasn't something that was pleaded, and it wasn't something that was in the skeleton argument. And for those reasons, the judge would not allow the introduction of a new point at that, at that um, uh, place in the proceedings, quoting from Holgate J in Bourne End, that cases must be properly pleaded so as to identify clearly and concisely the points raised. Uh, and so um, the third ground was that the council had acted irrationally by relying on the existence of other regulatory regimes. But again, uh, and, and that was tied up with the uh, Comar regs and also all the other regulations that govern air uh, helicopter flights in this instance. Um, uh, so it's an interesting example of uh, um, a claim which brings the transcript uh, in, in, into play. And indeed, one of the grounds feeds off the, uh, an allegation of a mistake in the transcript, but where the judge says, no, don't be too hypercritical. Thanks, Mary. Well, well done, Plymouth City Council. And indeed, Wade Begler. Indeed so. Um, well, I'm going to cover the next decision, and, and this relates to uh, an appeal, uh, inquiry appeal decision by Inspector Harold Stevens, uh, allowing an appeal by an SPV subsidiary of of, Gil, of uh, Legal and General's Inspired Villagers for a 133-unit uh, extra care scheme at Sonning Common in South Oxford dis District uh, within the Chilterns AONB. Now, Sonning Common, as, as many viewers will know, has a neighbourhood plan. Um, but it was based upon the former South Oxfordshire core strategy, which has since been withdrawn, and the neighbourhood plan itself was under review. In light of that, uh, Inspector Stevens thought the neighbourhood plan was out of date and had significantly reduced weight as a result. The district-wide local plan uh, was the South Oxfordshire local plan 2020, uh, adopted last year to uh, great publicity. Um, however, the inspector found in the circumstances of this appeal, that local plan uh, was wanting in, in two critical respects. Um, the first respect was that the council couldn't demonstrate a five-year housing land supply. They claimed 5.08 years. Um, inspector Stevens preferred the appellant's figure of uh, 4.21 years. Uh, and the reason for this was that in relation to a number of sites which fell into the category for which clear evidence of deliverability has to be demonstrated under the glossary definition of deliverable, principally allocations and outline permissions. The necessary clear evidence was lacking. Um, there are interesting observations in the decision on um, 
what the concept of clear evidence involves in this respect, building on observations uh, Harold Stevens himself has made in earlier appeal decisions, as have other inspectors. In summary, um, it means something cogent, more than assertion, which requires consideration of the key factors which bear upon a site's delivery and doesn't simply take at face value what developers say about the deliverability of their sites. So that was the first respect in which the local plan was wanting, more than five years supply. The, the second respect was the local plan didn't plan for extra care or indeed specialist older person's accommodation um, generally. It didn't prescribe particular levels of provision for specific types of specialist older persons housing. Uh, the strategic allocations in the plan didn't require or indeed propose extra care. There were no extra care schemes in the deliverable supply. And even the relatively low prevalence rate advocated by the council's need witness, which the inspector thought was too low, uh, even, even that lower prevalence rate generated a level of need that simply wasn't being provided for. Uh, and these factors provided important context for the inspector's subsequent consideration of whether the exceptional circumstances test in the framework for major development in the AOMB was met. Uh, and Inspector Stevens thought that it was met. Um, the, not the only, but the main considerations in this context were the impacts on the landscape and scenic beauty of the AOMB were localised, not unacceptable. Uh, and indeed, Inspector Stevens noted that uh, unlike in relation, for example, to Greenbelt, in, in this particular AOMB at least, built form was part of the characteristic done well. The mosaic of built form and the landscape was part of one of the special qualities of the AOMB. So it simply isn't the case that new built on land is, is anathema to the principle of AOMB, at least in the Chilterns. Um, secondly, um, no identified sites had been allocated or identified. And thirdly, significant weight was attached to the need for and benefits of uh, this kind of housing and indeed housing generally um, that the appeal scheme would deliver. Now, I think this is a, an important reminder of, of the benefits of, of this kind of development and perhaps even more importantly, a reminder of, of the uh, advantage of planning for it in local plans. And if local authorities don't plan for it, it's going to be harder to defend ad hoc appeals because you won't be able to rely upon your local plan as a sort of shield to the unallocated development. I think it's also interesting to note it's the fourth inquiry appeal to be allowed in, in the last two months in relation to specialist older persons housing, uh, in relation to which the benefits of this kind of development have been extolled. Um, Harold Stevens' um, uh, earlier decision in, in the Fleet case that Sasha did um, for, um, it was Churchill, wasn't it, Sasha? Then uh, my Life Story Livingston case by Inspector Gareth Fort, uh, Rupert Wand, uh, uh, Gill Living case in Walton on Thames, uh, and now Chris, uh, congratulations, Chris, um, did uh, th this case in, in Sonning Common. So four decisions uh, by three different inspectors, all noting the importance of um, specialist older persons accommodation. Arguably, um, that's just a sort of pattern forming. I know, Chris, you're going to pick up um, this issue of planning for this kind of housing in, in one of your questions uh, with Clive. Um, so I'm looking forward to hearing Clive's answer on that. Um, so that's Son in Common. Um, and Sasha, finally, you're going to tell us about her appeal decision in New Malden. I absolutely am, Charlie. But before I do, I just want to say a few words about, I just want to shout out for my clerk, who you know well, Bill King, who's retiring tomorrow after 49 years in Chambers. He joined in July 1972. And I, just to give a sense, I was looking up memorable events in 1972, and Clive certainly didn't think this was going to be mentioned, but 1972, 
certain four characters went into the Watergate building and had a look at various democratic information. That was in June 1972. Ten days later, Bill King walked up to Toomey to court and joined Chambers as a 16-year-old. And his first job was to clear the coal fires and remake them. That's what a clerk had to do in 1972. I know Paul wow. gets misty-eyed about the old bar and what it was like when he... 1972 but I wanted to shout out for him because he's clerked me for 30 years and as anyone who knows him and Charlie will attest to this he's the most honourable man and I love him dearly so I'm going to say goodbye to him tomorrow which will probably be one of the saddest days of my working career but now on happier climbs let me deal with a Paul Tucker triumph and that is in New Malden you see come to the planning bar and see the world Paul was proposing a scheme at a Tesco car park in New Morden, which he will remember well. And this involved, I mean, actually, this is a prototype of many schemes we'll probably all be promoting or dealing with over the next 10 to 15 years, which involves the reuse and consideration of excess retail land. And this involves 456 homes in the London borough of Merton. And as you can see, this is a decision of a DJ board, and it was effectively a mixed-use scheme, 456 homes, 499 um, square foot of office space, car parking spaces and cycling spaces. So redevelopment effectively and reuse of that land. The general matters in play, as Paul will remember, were character and appearance, parking and HLS. Paul effectively won on all three subjects. The inspector concluded that there was not a five-year land supply in the London borough of Merton. The tilt of balance was in play. There was significant weight should be given to affordable and market housing. And the overall planning balance was clearly tilted very favourably in, in favour of the grant of consent. And as one can see there from paragraph one, the appeal was allowed. So for all of you dealing with a housing scheme on effectively PDL and a sustainable location. This is a case study and the proper application of the tilted balance, in my humble opinion. So it's a very good decision and well done, Paul and his team, for winning both on the parking provision, particularly considered in the, light of the new London plan and also in design and appearance, because this was, I think Paul will correct me if I'm wrong, but up to 15 storeys, so significant intensification of the land. So that, that's a, a case study of a recent appeal of using such land. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, not Sasha. As the McGore case, Sasha. So, not, yes. not as important as the McGore case, no, Nothing, <laughs> nothing is. <laughs> um, Chris, over to you to uh, introduce our, our guest and start the interview. Thank you very much indeed, Charlie. Well, it is a tremendous honour uh, to uh, welcome to the show Clive Betts MP, uh, Clive is frankly uh, the leader, I think, in terms of the House, in his knowledge about our particular area, uh, housing, communities, local government. Uh, British Labour Party politician, former economist, uh, you've been a Sheffield MP since 1992, um, and previously you were leader of Sheffield City Council, and prior to that, deputy leader to the great David Blunkett. Um, you were selected in 2010 as the chair of the Select Committee on Communities and Local Government and were elected unopposed in 2015 uh, into that role again. 
there isn't much you don't know about local government and policy on housing. And it is a tremendous honour to have you as our guest this week. Thank you very much indeed, Clive. And also, I think, a Sheffield Wednesday fan. Is that right? Uh, yes. Uh, and I know a lot more about football defeats than I know about planning. I think that's <laughs> one of the problems of being a Wednesday fan. Yeah, but uh, I think there might be somebody who's quite famous and quite important right now, whose family and who comes from a village near you. Is that right? Yeah, in my constituency, um, Mr. Maguire, uh, I think oh. uh, had a certain role last night. Uh, um, yeah, got a very unfair yellow card. I think we were discussing that earlier on. Yes, um, but uh, his, uh, his his parents still live in uh, that part of my constituency, not not far from where I live. So, um, and I'm sure there's a, a a special um, you know, hope, uh, good wishes um, uh, and belief that he'll uh, have a winner's medal on Sunday. Absolutely. He is just a tremendous footballer yeah. and uh, so much so that I managed to get his name into closing submissions in one of my cases on Monday. Right. Uh, his only problem is he used to play for Sheffield United. That's, yeah. we, 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 we can't all be perfect, can we? <laughs> no, he doesn't seem to have harmed his career, though. To he be doesn't. No. Um, so my first question to you, Clive, please, is just to help us all understand what is the work that your committee does, please? Well, essentially, it's there to scrutinise the um, department which has the same name, um, Housing, Communities and Local Government. Uh, that's what select committees do. They scrutinise a particular government department generally. Uh, we can, of course, also scrutinise the work of local councils, uh, housing associations, uh, and anything that comes within that broad remit um, and make recommendations accordingly. We don't uh, pass legislation. We make recommendations which, particularly uh, government ministers, are supposed to take account of and respond to. They don't have to agree with them uh, or, or enact on them, but we, we, we come to our views um, by taking evidence from anyone who wants to submit to us, uh, but generally organisations interested in a particular field, uh, and we try and reach our, uh, our conclusions by consensus. So, um, you know, yes, I've been chair for 11 years. We've had one vote in 11 years. Everything else has been done by agreement and consensus. Wow. And, and the, the, the composition of your committee, uh, how, does it, how is it formed? Presumably, obviously, across all the parties. It's across parties, yes. It yeah, yeah it, there's six Conservatives, five Labour. Uh, all the members of the committee are elected by their colleagues in their own parties. As chair, I'm elected by MPs across the House. Yes, you see, I find that so very interesting because the recommendations in your report on the white paper that we're going to turn to now are made not just by... Uh, opposition uh, MPs, but they're also made by Conservative MPs. And yes. um, one would hope that the government listens to their own MPs as well as everybody else. My first question, therefore, is um, you are critical in the report. This is the report, and uh, it is a weighty, weighty tome full of, um, if I may say so, excellent recommendations. Uh, quite clear that you've been speaking with open ears uh, no, speaking uh, with an open mouth, <laughs> <All right. laughs> with open ears to to people who know about these matters, because it's so well informed. So the people that you're calling to your select committees are clearly giving you a lot of very valuable, important information. A lot of professional people, a lot of people in the industry. You say quite clearly you don't think as a committee there's a need to overhaul the whole system. And I just wanted to know why it is why do you what are the main reasons why you don't think we need to overhaul it 
I, I, I think one of our concerns is that we, every time government feels that we aren't doing something, i.e. building enough homes in this case, um, they, they reach for an easy solution, which is, oh, it must be the planning system um, because you need a planning approval to build houses. Uh, let's go and change the planning system. Uh, and, and there have been so many examples now over the last few years. Uh, what never happens is a proper evaluation of what previous changes have achieved. Uh, and I think before you look at f future changes, um, you, you, you need to evaluate what the previous ones have done. Uh, one of the other issues that government never quite seems to understand is that one of the major constraints on development is uncertainty. And if you look at a, you know, a major reform of the planning system, so fundamental as some of the uh, proposals here, um, then that uncertainty will linger for a long period of time. Uh, and that could actually act as a, a break on development rather than an encouragement to it. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I think uh, I think everybody listening probably agrees, not least of all, because last year we delivered nearly a quarter of a million homes in this country for the first time in, in decades. So the system starts to deliver the homes and that apparently is the time <laughs> to tear it up. Uh, Mr. Jendrick has said he's not looking to tear it up, but he is very keen on this zoning idea. And yes. So I just wanted your views, please, about the idea of zoning and no planning controls once zoned. Well, I wish I understood it for a start. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, that, that, that's the, 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 the problem is that we are trying to make judgments, and we say this in our report, on the basis of a white paper, which is you know, at a very superficial level. Uh, of, of, of proposal. So it's saying, well, yes, we, we have this zonal system. We've got growth areas and renewal areas, uh, protected areas. And, and the, it sort of indicates that once you're in what the protected or the renewal area, if you come forward with a proposal, a planning application that's consistent with, uh, with the sorts of development uh, in, in those zones, then it will get outlined planning permission and there won't be any ability to um, really comment or influence um, the final decision at the planning application stage. But you know, what is the detail that's going to be in the local plan? How much of it will there will be? Uh, is there going to be any ability to change? What happens in renewal area if the proposal is slightly different to that which is in the local plan? Uh, do you go back then to the sort of uh, situation we have now uh, where all the details are going to be done at the planning application stage? I, I just think there are so many questions. And one, one thing we've said very clearly in our, in our report is it is so general what's been suggested that the, the, the jump then to a, 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 a full-blown um, bill coming forward will run the risk of things just going badly wrong. If the government are intent on some of these proposals, what they've got to do is to put at least them in the form of a draft bill uh, so that we can then do a bit more scrutiny with the select committee, taking all the expert advice and, and testing the proposals to see if they really are going to work. Um, I did say in my statement to the to the to the House on this uh, that if we, if we don't do that and we just uh, you know force on uh, with uh, detailed changes on the back of these very general proposals, uh, the beneficiaries will probably be you lot right sat around uh, this call here. <laughs> you know, all, all the lawyers <laughs> who are going to make a lawful lot of money out of testing this uh, and developing case law to make up for the gaps that exist in what the government's suggesting.
Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And you might think we will welcome that. But uh, as people embedded in the system and seeing where it fails, uh, I'm afraid we don't yeah. generally. Um, now, one area that you have raised, uh, which everybody is interested in, is the green belt. You are right. advocating a review of the green belt, not not individual reviews, but a, a review of the whole concept of the green belt. My question is, why is that? Why do you think we need to do that? I, I think it's been, uh, first of all, I think the, the, the idea of having a green belt uh, per se, it, it, it wasn't really, apart from one or two um, extreme outliers in the development industry, it isn't really contested. So I, I think having, having a green belt uh, approach is right. We just ought to test whether it's uh, it, it, all the aspects of it. That, that's just a test. We didn't say um, specific recommendations, but we did actually... Uh, raise the issue as well uh, and we have them before uh, that, that if you're going to test it at local level the green belt it should be done as part of the local plan process uh, rather than uh, on individual applications or individual reviews it should be part of the whole process uh, and simply um, put there are there are some areas in, in the green belt which you can see immediately are Everyone assumes Greenbelt land is nice, countryside it isn't. Uh, can be pretty awful bits of industrial land uh, that, that, that ought to be built on to improve them. I've got one just at the road in my constituency in an old aerodrome. Uh, but uh, there are other areas that ought to get added protection because they are so important uh, bits of open space that the community greatly value and they ought to be given greater protection. So the, the Greenbelt ought to shift even within the overall policy there ought to be shifts at local level but done properly uh, as part of the local plan and do you think what underlies that is the fact that unlike the time when green belts were largely designated actually the housing need the housing crisis the housing emergency as shelter describe it has now um gained so much significance and weight that that is why we ought to be looking at certain sites in the green belt again we may have to look at some in some areas. Um, you know, the, the, the housing pressures are there, and you're absolutely right. Um, I, I just say there are uh, other things that, that that should be done as well. Uh, and I'm, you know, going going to relate to to the area I know best, which is the city I, I live in. Uh, and we've got a wonderful green belt because a third of Sheffield's in the Peak District National Park, yeah. uh, so it, it's there. It is protected specifically as well. That's absolutely wonderful. Um, but what we have got is a lot of old industrial land uh, and some really exciting potential to develop that for housing and for jobs uh, in my constituency. Uh, and we had the, the chair of Homes England, Peter Freeman, down uh, looking at this the other day and being really interested. The problem is the land is polluted. Uh, development as it stands isn't viable. And therefore, if you are going to protect the green belt, it shouldn't just be about drawing lines. It has to be get government resources into cleaning up old industrial land so we can actually go and build on it. So it's a much more rounded policy about housing, not just seeing planning in isolation, but seeing what could be achieved with some really exciting uh, uh, planning uh, input and initiative uh, into building on, on brownfield sites, which won't be built on, and you'll have to build on green, build on green belt to get the, the, the numbers up uh, unless you release the brownfield land. Uh, if, I, if, I, if I could, it just goes on as well to the, 
issue of the, the formula, the housing needs formula, which the government are proposing and seem to change uh, every year, uh, perhaps this time under pressure uh, from uh, Conservative MPs in rural areas in the south. Uh, I understand those pressures. They've got nice areas they want to protect. Um, the, 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 uh, in principle, the committee agreed with that we should have some sort of formula. And the local government association, who are very localist, agreed as well. Because a, a lot of planning inquiries on local plans are bogged down with argument about housing numbers. So to have some system of, of saying this is the number we should start with, uh, I think is, 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 is a good starting point. The problem is that the, the government are, are using in the assessment of that needs formula um, existing market demand. So they're looking where the demand for houses is enormously in the south and southeast and saying, yes, we should up the numbers there and build even more homes. And it reinforces the process. How does that square with the levelling up agenda yeah. where we actually want to get more development in the north, particularly in the smaller towns uh, and you know old industrial areas of the north where the current needs formula will actually reduce house building there? Uh, and mean that you're not, you, you've got land that could be built on where everyone would cheer the building uh, as improvements to the area, and yet the numbers are going to be reduced there. So I think there's, a, there's a, an issue there. Yes, let's look at protecting the Greenbelt, but let's do, do it with a wider understanding of housing challenges and what needs to be done. Yeah, Clive, don't even get me started on the figures for the north of England and the Midlands. Yeah. I mean, it's just they couldn't, they couldn't have got that more wrong if they tried. Absolutely. And yeah. We, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, one of the other observations you make is uh, your committee make is that the current planning system you believe is undemocratic. And I just wanted to know what, why you feel that, because we, we see a lot of people participating in it. Right. But uh, usually it sort of crunch points along the process. What, what, why undemocratic and what should change? I, I don't think actually as a committee we said that. It was a comment made to us in evidence. Right. Um, so I, I, I take your point. Um, I mean, the, the only the concerns I think that people do have, I probably made this comment, are that uh, planning inspectors are appointed, not elected, and they can come in and override the views of, of councillors. Uh, and I think there's always a, a tension there between communities who feel that they have... Um, a valid opposition to development, they get their local councillors to agree. And then this inspector who they never see again comes in and says, well, actually, you're all wrong. We're going to allow the development to proceed. I think that, that, that's, a, that, that's, that's a sort of um, yeah, concerns that were expressed by some people in the, in the inquiry. But it, it, I think for the most part, we would, we would accept that the current system uh, has, has strengths. Um, and... Um, one of the concerns was raised particularly was about the, the government's proposals uh, and, and we know that yeah I, I'd like we can talk about it if you want I'd like to see improvements to the local plan process absolutely uh, but currently we, we can't get many people engaged in local plan, in the local plans uh, the, 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 the most engagement is with uh, is the developers arguing against the council and, and their, their lawyers and consultants arguing on either side of the process. Yes. People tend to get engaged when an application is made about a particular scheme in their, in their area. Uh, and, and if you take that away, are you then taking something fundamental away from how people feel about the planning system? Yes. Well, I mean, I think some people would say, actually, the, the most uh, active are the uh, 
local residents who oppose development. They seem to be the ones most engaged and listened to. And it's all the people who haven't got housing and haven't got affordable housing who aren't listened to. And, and therefore, the democratic deficit, uh, you know, I would suggest to you is in the people who aren't properly represented, who are often the lower sections of society or those unable to get their own homes, rather than the people who own them, who we seem to listen to an awful lot, actually. Well, I, I, I think that that can be a fair comment in some cases, and that that's why the the committee recognised uh, the government's desire to give greater strength to local plans, because you know local plans should set out, uh, and this is where I think we don't quite understand what the government intends in detail. Why the detail is so important? It is right that local plans to give a degree of certainty to where development will happen, uh, and, and and the scale of development in an area, as well as setting out. Uh, where open spaces, which is incredibly important. I think we think we're seeing through COVID the importance of urban open space yeah. uh, for, for families and households. Absolutely crucial. Um, the, the feeling that, that the government's planning white paper wasn't a planning white paper, it was a house building white paper. Uh, and so there's a whole the other aspects of planning that are, uh, are absolutely so important. But yes, we, we, we need those homes. And, and what a, a local plan can do that in the, just considering individual applications doesn't do is to say, OK, we're going to have to build a certain number of homes. Where's the best place to put them? What do we need to do to put them in the right place? And then back to issues like viability of brownfield sites. So I, I, I think you know, the, the importance of local plans, we agree with. We're just not sure how the government's um, you know, proposals of not allowing any say at an application stage that could affect the outcomes was really going to uh, run with local people. But we need to get more people engaged in local plans. Absolutely right uh, about, about the where things should be done as opposed to whether they should be done. Okay, and my final question is, very interestingly, as Charlie's mentioned, huge development potential associated with specialist housing for older people, uh, in particular, for example, extra care that Charlie was talking about. 1% of the UK population over 65 lives in specialist accommodation. In Australia and New Zealand, it's 13%. In the United States, it's 17%. Huge potential. Huge potential to free up a lot of family houses in high demand areas. So your recommendations there, you've clearly listened to people, listened to the industry, listened to those involved. You are advocating far more recognition of that sector and indeed the allocation of land for that sector and the different parts within it. Can I just ask you, why is that? Why do you see that as important? Because we heard, we heard the evidence very clearly that you know, we've we got an older population. People are living longer. It's great. Uh, and um, you know, some older people will be happy living in their home and get support and help in it. Uh, and that's where they want to stay. But we, we shouldn't just regard older people as one homogenous group. So we should offer them a, a wide variety of alternatives, uh, including uh, extra care facilities. And they should involve a mixture of uh, homes for sale and homes for rent. Uh, I've got an extra care facility in my constituency. Uh, there are waiting lists both to buy the homes and to rent them, a very long waiting list, because the, the scheme is very popular. It serves a very good purpose. Um, and uh, talking to, to developers, they will say two things. I mean, the, the, one is that very often they get outbid for land uh, by the, the, the traditional uh, you know, mass volume builder when yep. it comes to sites being available. 
secondly, the sites they need are often uh, very steep hill, and we've got lots of those in Sheffield. It's probably not the right place to put uh, a development for older people. So you've got to have particular sites. So the, the local plan ought to be look at those f- uh, features, say, yes, we need some sites preserved, and they ought to be ones in particular places which are, are particularly suitable uh, for older people to have their homes. Uh, and then there is the issue, I think, we came about in the previous report on, on homes for older people, um, that I think it's New Zealand which we, we looked at, have got a particular designation, uh, a particular category, which specifies what, what these developments are. Uh, if you ask people what um, the extra care or retirement homes are in this country, you'll get lots of different definitions and explanations, which, which, which sort of muddied the waters in planning terms. So I think we, the, a, a clearer definition, we asked them for several years ago, we still haven't got it. Right, thank you very much indeed. Like, those are my questions. Can I turn to Paul then? And do you have a question? Yeah, I, I, I do. First of all, it's always a joy to hear somebody from Sheffield. As a child, my uncle worked at the uh, the Fiesta uh, in Sheffield, which is where all the snooker took place and where the Tom Jones of this world, etc., used to go. It used to be great. I used to pile my desk high with uh, with autographs long since lost. No, no idea what happened to those. Uh, and my dad went to Sheffield Poly, so it's a joy to hear from you, Clive. Right. So m- my question is, um, w- when I read the white paper this, this time last year on holiday in Wales... Um, we, we, I read it sort of in, in about 24 hours, and I thought, well, where's, where's the meat? Um, this didn't feel like a white paper. It felt like a green paper. And yet we've now had a year of no real further details uh, in, in terms of government identifying what it is, uh, which yet leaves sort of a fear about what we're, we're going to have, but no real identification of what's going to happen apart from these broad themes. How, how useful do you think this process is rather than having had a traditional green paper followed by a white paper? I don't, it, it, it depends. If the government now, as I said, goes straight into um, a, a full-blown uh, bill, they'll probably get it wrong because there hasn't been enough testing. A green paper could have been, been helpful if the government believes the, the concerns. It was almost like, um, you know, we've been told to get on and do something about house building. Therefore, we need to do something about planning. Uh, we need to have a white paper to show we're serious. Uh, and here are a few ideas. I, I, I'm, now, I may, I, I may be totally wrong about that, but, but being a bit cynical, it, it, it looks as though that how, how that came about. Uh, and it's built on the, uh, on the presumption that planning is an obstacle to growth. And th- those words actually appeared in a white paper that George Osborne produced um, shortly after the coalition government began, those very words. Um, and I always contrast, because I, I, I you know, got some connections with, Nether- I chair the Netherlands group in parliament, uh, and uh, talking to, to colleagues over in the Netherlands, a completely different approach. There they see plan- uh, planning as, as the deliverer of growth, uh, the, you know, the, the enabler of growth, and here we see it as the obstacle to growth. Uh, and I think it's still that mentality that, that drove the white paper. We've got to do something, therefore it must be planning, therefore let's stick a few ideas down. I'm sorry, it, it doesn't add up to much more than that to me. Uh, thank you very much, Clive. And I also, along with Chris, strongly commend people to read the read your committee's report. It's fascinating reading. Thank you. Thanks. And thank Mary. you for coming to give evidence as well. Yeah, yeah well, th- I, I was yes. great. noted. Thank you for yeah, Absolutely. So I'd better mention that, put it on the record. <laughs> 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 all northerners welcome mary <laughs> thank you very much chris so so clive my, my question is about um permitted development rights because 
Um, the government has been very busy rolling out uh, permitted development rights in the last year, even if yeah. they haven't been very busy am amplifying the white paper. And I, I wonder whether your committee was reassured by uh, what Mr. Pincher had to say in his letter to you uh, on the 30th of, of June, having appeared at your committee. He then wrote this letter in which he tried, he, well, he set out the details of the prior approval process. Yeah. This is in the context of um, Class E um, development being allowed to go to residential use. Um, and of course that all kicks off uh, on the 1st of August. Um, and I wondered how reassured you all were by Mr. Pincher setting out the prior approval process. So, uh, and I also wanted to just mention a point that has been made to us um, by um, previous guests, which is that one of the problems with the prior approval process and the fact that there is a limited amount of time for councils to respond on these prior approvals means that prior approvals are in fact jumping the queue ahead of regular planning applications for housing, jobs, whatever, uh, because the local government has had to sort of reprioritize their, their limited um, capacity. So it's a sort of law of unintended consequences. Um, um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't had that point made to me, uh, but I can okay. see it. I can see it. And one thing we did, we, we has been raised with this. And I have to be just a, a bit circumscribed because we haven't agreed our report uh, on permitted development yet. We, mm. we're, you know, we just the the the, the, the minister's appearance uh, was 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 the last of our oral evidence sections, but we haven't finalised um, our report. But we we have commented uh, on a number of occasions about the lack of resources uh, in the planning system. Indeed, it comes back to the government's uh, idea that within 30 months you can rewrite every local plan as part of their zoning system. Well, mm. uh, I'm sorry, it's just a piece of fiction that, I mean, there just aren't the resources and the skills there in local authorities to do it. Um, so, uh, yeah, obviously, that, 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 that links into what you just said uh, about limited resources. And therefore, if you're going to do something more quickly, something else goes more slowly. It's almost yeah, yeah. inevitable. Um, in, in terms of his uh, responses, um, the, uh, and again, this, the committee will come to a view about this, but let's say there are, I think, still questions to be asked around a number of issues. Uh, one was the extent to which you can take the environment in which a, um, a, a, a PDR application uh, into account, mm. uh, you know, in prior approval. It's, 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 it was a, a bit unclear from what he said. Uh, and I wasn't quite clear exactly w w whether, whether the concept of natural light was as, um, uh, w w was something that might cause you um, to earn a bit more money in arguing about it in future cases. Um, you know, uh, uh, he seemed to imply that a skylight was would would would, would conform to the new rules, but I, I don't know. Um, uh, and just what, one other issue, which uh, he had, wasn't about residential, uh, around, around uh, um, now uh, automatically being able to transfer from one use uh, in use class E to another, particularly from office to residential. Mm -hmm. we, we asked about that, about whether that could be used to get around the sequential test uh, for retail. Uh, and his answer was, well, it wouldn't really be particularly a worry because there was a restriction of, I think it's 1,500 square metres uh, on developments which could be done in that way. But there isn't, as I understand it. That restriction only comes where there's a, a permitted development from a use class E 
uh, office to residential, but not from use class E office to uh, retail. Therefore, you could have quite a substantial amount of out-of-town retail uh, through a change of use within use class E. Uh, and that, I think, is something we might, we might explore a bit further. Mm-hmm. I mean, your answer just reveals um, how quite complicated the whole, yeah. we, you know, you, the whole notion of permitted development is, in fact, to make life easier. But permitted development rights have now got so complicated. Yes. In, in many ways, it's easier just to go straight in and make a planning application. Well, I, I think That's the point was made, made in evidence, which we will be reflecting on, uh, that, that what should have been a very simple process, you just get on and do it, uh, as becoming an awful lot more complicated, both for the applicant uh, and for the local authority. Mm, indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Charlie, what's your question? Thanks, Chris. And hi again, Clive. Um, hi. If, you, um, if you became Secretary of State for CLG overnight, um, and you went into the office tomorrow, what would be the first planning-related thing that you would do? I don't know. Uh, I suppose um, the, 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 the simple answer would be pick up the phone to the five of you on this call and that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> your experience. What could be done better? Uh, but, but one thing I think is actually, to be fair, and I've been very critical of some of the process, it, it is quite sensible. that we, we Because it's sensible, because we told the government to do it five years ago, Hmm. That's to simplify the local plan process. Hmm. It has got incredibly complicated, hmm. very time-consuming. People don't engage because they just can't face the, 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 the amount of information around. And, uh, and it means that local plans are often out of date. Uh, and one very important example is that the, 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 the nature of retailing, the amount of retailing we're going to need now let alone the future, has changed substantially. Online shopping, and you're not going to change it. uh, People want to do it, so they're going to do it. Uh, But it's changed the amount of retail floor space we need, which means town and city centres have to adapt and change. Uh, There's hardly a local plan in the country which is taking that into account. Even the ones that are five years old are probably out of date by now. So having a process which is which is simpler to do, involves more people and could be updated more quickly, I think is something that if we're going to have a plan-led system, we need good quality, up-to-date plans and we haven't got them currently. Hard to argue with that. Absolutely. Uh, Sasha, your question, please. Yes, thank you, Chris. Clive, could you take me into the, the well, I was going to say smoke-filled tea room of, of infamous fame in the house of commons i mean what's your what's your gut feeling about the political will that lies in the conservative party to drive through the white paper because obviously from an outsider's point of view it's portrayed that there's been a kind of collective loss of nerve because of amersham and cheshire what's your feel for where where the political will stands to drive it forward I don't know. Um, I think one of the problems with the last few months is that we, ha- we haven't been in, in, in close proximity in tea rooms, smoke-filled or otherwise. Uh, and so it's been a bit difficult sometimes to get a sense of where things are at. There's clearly a lot of concerns uh, on the backbenchers, including the Conservative backbenchers, about these proposals. Um, it's difficult to pick up whether they are about the... Uh, principles of the reforms or about the outcomes in terms of housing numbers in areas. But I think there is a genuine concern across the House about the thing to which local communities will feel excluded uh, from the system. 
uh, and won't have a say in their communities, which is a backstop. Even if in the end the planning inspector comes to a different view, at least people have had the chance to have their say. If you tell people, well, that was all agreed three years ago, you don't have a say anymore. I think I think I think MPs are genuinely worried uh, about the, the backlash for that. Um, so uh, my, my guess they're going to have to revisit the zoning proposals, but at least they could begin by telling us what they actually mean with some details. And that's why I think uh, coming up with an interim stage before they produce uh, a, a new act will actually help the government as well. It, 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 you know, if, if they want to make some changes, uh, uh, yeah, I think the, the local plan changes, they, 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 they're still going to do something, I think. The, the government, to back off and say we're, we're producing nothing at all now, um, I think they, I think they will, will make changes on the local plan, and I think most of those would get support. I think they'll make, they may well make some changes about penalising developers that don't build out. Because uh, I think the government's got frustrated with that, and we made re recommendations as a committee. I think they'll get support across the house for that. So I think some of the proposals will come forward. It's a question of whether, whether, in, in, and in what form, uh, any zoning changes and any exclusion of the public after the local plan stage will be taken forward. And I think that's where the doubts are. Thank you. Thank you, Sasha. I'm just going to ask one audience question, if I may, Charlie. Roland Bolton, we all know Roland's uh, a a keen a keen supporter of Sheffield in so many ways, based in the city. He says, look, in Sheffield, your approach to delivering on previously developed land has resulted in 75% of recent and future supply in one and two bedroom apartments and student flats. That's an issue that's happening across the country. And very few family houses are being delivered and very little affordable housing. Does the committee recognise the problem with this constant focus on urban land and flats and tall buildings you're just not delivering the country isn't delivering family housing and affordable like it used to does that concern you uh yes um it, but on the other hand you know we we in Sheffield, we had a lot of students living in in family type homes who are now living in student accommodation. So I think there, there's been some transfer there, um, which which is beneficial. The uh, but, you know the we I think, I, we haven't got a I mean one I've been a bit critical uh, of the lack of, a, of an up to date local plan in Sheffield. Uh, but if we are going to build the number of homes, forty thousand uh, over the next fifteen years, that the government. No, that, that we think, the council thinks we need, the government thinks we need 50,000, um, and you're not going to go out and build on the green belt, you're going to have to build on, on, on brownfield land. Um, and the, uh, quite a few of them, not all of them, you can't, you can't avoid building on some green fields, uh, not necessarily on the green belt, but on green fields. Um, but if we're going to build on, on, on urban land, why can't we build family homes near the city centre? There's, there's no, yeah. I, I think we've just got to be recognised that we, we haven't. Therefore, um, that isn't a, a reason why we shouldn't. Uh, I, and I think that's going to be a real challenge. It, it, it's probably why as well you need more powers uh, in, with, the, with the local authority to be able to designate areas for particular sorts of housing. Uh, and I think having some family housing brought back into the city centre, there's going to be lots of land there because we're not going to need the amount of retail. Uh, that, that we once had. We've got to reinvent the city centre, reimagine it uh, and do different things. Uh, and so um, the, the, and we can build lots of family homes in the old industrial areas of Sheffield, which, you know, again, I talked about before, you, know, you, you need to make the land viable, clear up pollution, but they can be made incredibly attractive areas. You've got the, the, Don, the, the River Don running through, you've got the Sheffield Canal um, and potential waterside uh, developments. Um, yeah, let some family homes get built there. I, I'm, I'm all in favour of that. 
uh, and you can build them on brownfield land. Clive, thank you ever so much. I have right. to say, personally, it's an enormous honour to to you, everybody knows that you are frankly uh, the father of the house as far as this issue is concerned. Uh, nobody knows more about this, and it's a relief to hear you arguing and pointing out to the government what they're getting wrong. And we are so grateful that you've come on the show. Well, thank, thanks very much, Chris. Can I just say it's a, it was a relief to be called the father rather than the grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> talking of the house, I love it. Is that a Lego model behind you? It is a Lego model. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, no, no, I, I, around Big Ben either. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and yes, we did get planning permission for it. For you. <laughs> 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 a huge thank you for, for me too. Um, and I'm sure on behalf of all of our viewers. All of us. Really, really yeah. fascinating. Okay. Keep up. Great work. We're looking forward to seeing um, further progress uh, of, of the Select Committee's consideration. Um, and to our viewers, thank you for joining us. Cheers. We'll see you next week. It's coming home. Yes. It is coming home. <laughs> it's coming home. <laughs> bye bye, everybody. Bye. Well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays. <laughs>